All right, so like Rebecca said, I did um, speak on stage for the Mother's Day prayer. And during that time, my papers were shaking so hard that it sounded like a fan in the microphone. I was convinced of it. So I have a stand this time. So I can hopefully get through all of this without the shaking papers. Um, So this week we were diving into Jonah chapter four. And just in the first three chapters, we saw a lot of up and down in Jonah's life in this story. Jonah, a prophet that we thought had possibly begun to repent and then follow God in what he's calling him to do. But now here he is in chapter four and he's throwing another pity party for himself, but this time it is full of anger and he is not afraid to tell God about it. And I think that if we just kind of slow down and take a look and take a step back, I'm hoping by the end of tonight, we can get a better understanding of Jonah in this anger that he's displaying because I think if we can do that, then it'll be a pretty good indication that we have a better understanding of our own sin in our life. So hopefully that's where we get to by the end. So just doing a little recap from last week in chapter three. The rebellious, murderous, idol-worshiping Ninevites, they had completely changed their way of living. They changed their actions and they called out to God, which is incredible. It really is incredible, especially since this all happened after a very short sermon from a very grouchy prophet. So that's, that's something that should have been thought about by Jonah and he should have been praising God for this and just displaying a lot of joy. Um, but instead he was choosing to react in anger and then flees. So when I picture this scene playing out in Jonah, Um, getting ready to leave Nineveh, I see Jonah walking down the streets. I see him looking side to side at the Ninevites as they have repented and they're in sackcloths and they're fasting and being kind to each other and calling out to God. And I just see Jonah standing there, clenching his fist, shaking his head, just mumbling under his breath how unfair this is or how awful this is of God to be doing this. And just as he's leaving the city, he just continues to clench those fists and to hold on to this anger. And then as we saw in our homework in the past chapters of Jonah, he does know God. He, he knows God, he believes in God. He proclaims himself to be a Christian and he can even recite scripture from the time of Moses. And he does that in this text. He says, he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is Is it not what I said when I was yet in my country, that this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish? For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful. You were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So he can repeat scripture. We know that he's in the word of God and that he was supposedly living his life for God when he was back in his own country. But then suddenly, as the Ninevites repented, he is seeing his fears being played out in front of him. He is seeing that his God, who he wanted to be of God of his own people, a God that has only wrath against those that are not his people, the Ninevites, that his fears are being played out, that he is actually a God of all people. And that makes Jonah very angry. A God for the Israelites is what he wanted to see and a God full of only wrath towards the Assyrians. But then 
as it was displayed that they repented and that he was a God of all people, the beautiful character of God was further being revealed, but so was the ugly, self-righteous character flaws of Jonah. And we all have character flaws. I don't think that I could ask anybody out here and they would tell me that they are perfect, such that maybe Jonah thought that he was. But the question is, when are our character flaws revealed? Our sins, just like Jonah's, are exposed when we do not get what we want, just like Jonah is not getting what he wants here. We think that we know best when it comes to our own lives because we are living with ourselves every single second of every single day. And we're often blinded to outside opinions, especially if they're God's and against what we want for ourselves. So when something, gets, when something happens that goes against what we want, sometimes we get angry. We might fall to our knees weeping, but we might get angry. And sometimes we ask God, why is this happening to me? Why are you doing this to me? Why can't you give me a break? Why is it always something, God? As soon as, soon as we refuse to or fail to recognize that all things from God are indeed good, we are sinning against God, even in that moment, as soon as we fail to recognize that. We may see clearly, um, we may see God clearly in our good times or maybe in our really rough times, but the question is, are we seeing him in just our day to day, in just the daily annoyances or as Matt, Rebecca's husband said, just on a Monday or on a Tuesday. We end verse three with Jonah asking God to take his life, stating that death would have to be better than seeing his enemies find grace in the eyes of the Lord. In our homework, we opened the Bibles to Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, and read over the parable of the prodigal son. Here, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. We find the two, two sons here. The firstborn son is loyal to his father. He is doing what he is supposed to be doing. He is doing his part on the farm. And that's what he continues to do every single day. He shows up and he does what he's supposed to. The younger son, however, is another story. The younger son asks for his share of the inheritance and God gives it to him. He gives him what he wants. And sometimes that's something we need to keep in mind. If we're continuously praying for something, sometimes God's gonna give it to us, even when that's not something that's gonna be good for us. And this is what the younger son does. He asks for his portion of the inheritance and he takes it and he flees far away. And as he flees, he spends his inheritance on who knows what, but he finds himself working back on a farm, this time feeding the hogs and wishing that he could eat what they are eating. He is low. He is the lowest he could ever be. And he finds himself sitting there, needing the grace of his father. So he finds it in himself to go back home. And he asks, he wants to ask his father, please, can I work for you as a servant? I don't expect anything else. I am not worth anything else. Please just let me be a servant and live a better life than the one I'm asking. 
So he works up the courage and he goes back to the farm. And instead of being greeted with anger or with wrath or with shouting, anything you could imagine with what he probably deserved after doing what he did, his dad opens up his arms to him and just runs to him and hugs him and kisses him and tells him how happy he is that he is back. Obviously, this is exactly what God does for us. And then he throws, the father throws a big party for his son because he was lost, but he is now found. He was, he was dead and now he is alive again. And that is something to celebrate. And it, all, it will always be something to celebrate. So he gets his fattest calf apparently and kills it and they party over it. And everyone's having a great time except the elder son who was doing his chores probably as he was supposed to. And he hears this party going on and he is angry. He hears that his younger brother is back and gets even more of what he thinks that he doesn't deserve. He already got the inheritance and now he's getting a fattened calf, something that he had never gotten. And he's angry and he does not quietly keep this to himself. He tells his father, you have never given this to me. He does not deserve it. He left, he took the money and he blew it all and he's back. And you're just going to open your arms up to him like this? So before... Even the beginning of Jonah, I would have never linked these stories together. But then the more, I, the more time I spent in Jonah, the more I could just see Jonah in this story. So I think that Jonah lived a great portion of his life being like the elder brother. He was living in Israel. He was close with the king. He was doing what he was supposed to. He was leading his people. He was in the word as we see because he can recite stuff back. Um, and he's, he's paying his dues and he's deserving of God's grace because he did those things. And his people that are also doing that, they're deserving of God's grace because they're doing those things. The Ninevites though, those are the younger brothers. He's thinking that they do not deserve God's grace. And I think that Jonah probably lived that way for a long time until he became the younger brother. He was asked to do something that he want, didn't wanna do. So I think that he fleed just like the younger brother fled to a far off country, Jonah tried to do the same thing. So Jonah was a prophet in Israel, which probably meant that he didn't have a lot of money. And I think that probably to get a fare down at Joppa and go to a country far off, it wasn't a short trip. I think he probably had to pay money for it. That's what I think. <laughs> and that could have cost him all of his money. So just like the younger brother spent all of his money trying to pursue something else other than what he was called to do, Jonah potentially spent all of his money with no intention of coming back. But his plans, just like the younger brothers, they did not pan out. The younger brother found himself at the very bottom feeding the hogs, wanting what they had. And Jonah found himself sinking to the bottom of the ocean about to die. And just like the father's grace poured over the younger son, God's grace poured over Jonah when he called a fish to swallow him up. And Jonah got to spend time with God in the belly of the fish, praying to him, repenting. The younger son tells his father, I'm not deserving. I have sinned against you. Just let me be your servant. And Jonah in a way is saying the same thing. I am here in the bottom of the fish. Lord, I am sorry, I'm not worthy. 
And then Jonah gets vomited out. (laughs) And we think that that will probably change him. We don't know the rest of the story about the younger son, but we're thinking, okay, he will repent and he will remain on this path, but how quickly he goes back to being the older son. When he came back, when God brought him back and he repented of everything, God showed him that mercy. He showed him the grace. He was slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He goes back to being the older brother and his younger brothers, the Ninevites, they were brought back into their father's arms. They were lost and now they are found. And Jonah is angry about it. He was just given the same love and grace and mercy that the Ninevites were given. His younger brothers were given. And he takes on that elder brother role and he's mad about it. He fails to see that God is a God of all people and that he is going to share that mercy and love and grace with every older brother, with every younger brother, always. And I think that we too take on the role of the younger brother and we take on the role of the older brother at all different times of our lives, all different seasons of our lives. So in that moment, in every moment, God was gracious with Jonah and he will continue to do so as he walks outside of the city that he was called to be in for three days and he walks out after only one. God will continue to pursue him. So at this point in time, Jonah stood outside of the city. He was refusing to enter into this party, just like the elder brother was refusing to enter into the party. He stood outside, throwing the little pity party for himself, being angry, and he built himself a shelter. We already have seen that Jonah idolizes his nation, his race, his country, but now we are seeing that Jonah has more idols than just that. He idolizes his own self-comfort. So Jonah thought that potentially he'd be spending some time outside of the city. He wanted to see it fall. He wanted to see the Ninevites have the wrath poured over them. He didn't know how long it was gonna take, but he would sit there until he would be able to see it. And he wanted to be comfortable in doing so because that was one of his idols. He is selfish, he is self-righteous, and he wanted to feel comfort. So he builds probably a pretty pretty crappy shelter around himself. But God wants us to be comfortable. He does. He does not want us to feel discontent and discomfort. So God, being the amazing creator that he is, calls a plant to grow up over Jonah in just a very short amount of time, which is miraculous in itself, because he wants to save Jonah. He wants to save Jonah from his discomfort. And Jonah went from being extremely mad because the idol of his nation and of his race was now at risk because the enemies, the Ninevites, were repenting. This was dangerous. This was potentially very dangerous for him and for his country. So his idol was at risk here, so he was angry. And now a plant has grown up over him and he is exceedingly happy because his idol, comfort, is being fed into. So our emotions are up and down all the time. And our emotions tend to get further up and further down if they are set solely on idols in our lives. They have a bigger effect on us. They can 
bring us the most joy and then they can cut us down so quickly. But if we stay strong, encircling our life, revolving our life around God, we're not gonna experience those highs and lows like that because we always know where we can come back to, the center, our creator. So we all have idols, we do. We could probably go around and we could each name one, but there's too many of us here, so we're not gonna do that. But when we are serving our idols, we are unable to see the grace in God. And the crazy thing is that Jonah knew this. He included this in his prayer. He said in chapter two, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah knew this. He prayed this, yet he is unable to fully accept this, view this and accept this steadfast love because he has those vain idols. And those vain idols are making him experience that anger and then that exceedingly good joy. So God asked Jonah here, do you do well to be angry? And then we just sit in that for a second. And I think about all the times that God has asked me, Katie, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry with your kids right now? Do you do well to be angry that your professors all scheduled a test on the same day? Do you do well to be angry that your women's ministry leader is having you teach a Bible study? (laughs) And I could answer those. I could say yes. I do well to be angry. I told my kids five times not to jump off the couch. And now one of them's crying. Like, yes, I do well to be angry. And then I can take a deeper look. I can look at the roots of my anger. Is it really because my kids aren't listening to me? Or is it because I don't feel like I'm doing a sufficient job leading them? That I feel as a failure as a mother because I can't get my kids to listen to me. Do I do well to be angry that Rebecca is having me up here right now because it was hard to do this? Because I didn't know where to start and I didn't know which direction to go? Or is the root of my anger really because I don't wanna lose favor in your guys' eyes? I don't wanna lose favor in the ones that I think so highly of and I don't want to be termed a failure like I see of myself. Once again, this anger that I'm experiencing so many times is not due to the actual problem that I'm looking at. The roots are much deeper down than that. And that's something that we need to reflect on, not just in anger. When we're feeling that exceeding joy, what what is that joy rooted in? Is it in the idol of our comfort like Jonah? Is it in the idol of a relationship that we're in? Is our joy coming from our husband? Is our joy coming from our role as a teacher? Is our exceeding joy coming in, our, coming in as from our role as a teacher or a mom or anything you want it to be, being the funny one in your friends group? Or is our joy rooted deep in God? And it's hard to stop and ask ourselves those questions in the moments, but if you find yourself just having a lot of anger over something. Ask yourself, where, where's the root of this anger coming from? Where's the root of this joy coming from? And if you trace it back, you're going to find what you're revolving your life around. That idol that is set deep inside your heart. <laughs>
So now Jonah has this great comfort over him and he is exceedingly happy. And then God calls a worm to come and destroy this happiness and the plant dies. So this is something that is hard because God brings us comfort because he wants us to repent. We read that in Romans 2.4. He brings kindness so, he can, so we will repent. But also God brings storms into our lives. He brings trials into our lives. And this is what he's doing again for Jonah. He has brought Jonah a lot of things and Jonah's not paying attention. He called him to Nineveh and he fled. He brought a storm, still didn't get Jonah. He had a fish come and swallow him up and vomit him out and Jonah's still not getting it. He sent Jonah into the city and the whole city, thousands of people repented after a short sermon and Jonah's still not getting it. He goes out of the city and God creates this tree plant, <laughs> creates this plant to come up over him and provide him comfort and Jonah's still not getting it. And so now he's going to bring a storm. God does not always bring storms when we're expecting them. And when he does bring a storm, it's after sin. Every sin that we commit, every sin in our lives that we continue to come back to, all sin is attached to a storm. We don't know when the storm is coming. We don't know how big the storm is going to be. For Jonah this time, it was a plant taking away his comfort. I am well aware of what storms look like when they're coming from God because I have had a lot of sin in my life and I have had a lot of storms in my life. I, as you know, cause I've already put them in here, but I have two kids and they're wonderful. And if you would have asked me four and a half years ago when I got pregnant, how excited I was, all you would have had to say is pregnant and I would have started crying. When I was in college, I was very sinful. But like Jonah, I thought that I was a Christian. I thought that I knew God. I thought that God is merciful and I am a sinner, but also God is merciful and I'll I'll be okay. So after college and committing a lot of sin and feeling it, I tried to run away from it. I thought people here know how sinful I am. They know my heart. They know my actions. They probably have put so many labels on me that I'm going to leave. I'm gonna go to Oregon by myself and I'm gonna start a new life because people say you can't run away from your problems, but I'm going to try. So I did. And it worked for a little bit. And in Oregon, I found myself desiring a stronger relationship with God. And it was great. There was nobody around forcing that on me. There was nobody around telling me to go to church, yet I found myself going to church by myself in Oregon, which was amazing. And then I met a guy in Oregon and he loved Jesus. I was like, wow, this is so great. I've been going to church and now God's rewarding me. And I got myself a Christian man. So it was going great until all of the sin that, I was, that was happening here in Iowa just started creeping back into my life in Oregon. And I found myself in Oregon, far away from home, pregnant. And I was crushed. I was 
crying uncontrollably every time I even thought about having kids. I did not want to be with this man anymore. I already knew that it wasn't a healthy relationship. I did not want to be pregnant. No part of me wanted to be pregnant. In fact, I wanted to end the pregnancy and pretend like nothing ever happened. And then when I found out that I was gonna have two kids, not just one, that took me even further down into the sea. I was sinking. Every single day, I felt like I was sinking further. One of the scariest phone calls I made was calling my parents to tell them that I was pregnant. I was crying on the phone before I even said anything. And my mom just asked me, Katie, what, what's wrong? And I said, well, I'm pregnant. And I was crying. She goes, oh, Katie. And I said, that's not it. And I said, what do you mean? I said, well, there's two of them. And then she started laughing. And I was like, that is... That was not the reaction I wanted, but after she started laughing and I was crying uncontrollably, she just told me, it's okay. Like, I love you and it's going to be okay. I was expecting a talk. I was expecting something other than this love that she was pouring over me. And then she said, do you want me to put your dad on the phone? I said, well, I was kind of hoping you could do that. <laughs> so she hung up the phone and she did. And then my dad called and he told me how much he loved me. And he told me everything was going to be okay. And I hung up the phone and five minutes later, my brother called me and he told me the exact same thing. And then five minutes later, my other brother called me and told me the exact same thing. All this love was being poured over me and all this acceptance and I felt no wrath from my family. I felt no condemnation from my family. Yet I didn't care. I was sad. I was crushed. This isn't how I wanted my life to go. This is not the plans that I had for my life. I was trying to be a better Christian. Like, why would God have me be pregnant right now? Like, this isn't what I want. I don't want people to look at me as the person that got pregnant outside of wedlock. So knowing that I was having twins and knowing that the relationship I was in wasn't fantastic, I packed up my stuff and moved back to Iowa. And actually, Jake, the biological father of my children, he moved too. And I said, well, I'm stuck. I'm stuck in this relationship, just like Joan was stuck, but this is the way that it is. So I moved back to Iowa, and after about being <coughs> pregnant for about 15 weeks, I finally started coming to terms with it. I was like, okay, this is the way that it is, and I'm just going to embrace it. And no later than one week after finally accepting it, I went to the doctor and they said that the boys would probably not make it because I was already dilated. I was only 20 weeks pregnant. And, and he said, you can come in here for comfort when they pass, but that's probably all we can do. If you do make it to 24 weeks or 23 weeks, we can give you steroid shots. But the way that it's looking now, that probably won't happen. And I was crushed. I had finally accepted the fact that I was going to have these kids and I wanted them. And so then I just started praying. And I don't know when I had prayed before then. It had been a long time because I felt weird doing it. And I just prayed and I said, okay, God, please save these boys. Please just put it on my heart what I need to do. Please tell me. And it was almost like an 
I, I wanted to give God something so he would give me something back. I wanted to earn that favor for God. And then I went on bed rest and I have the boys. So they were born at 25 weeks and they were in the NICU for 118 days. And in that time, that is when I started a real relationship with Christ. They were born and they were tiny. They were so little. They were one and a half pounds and they were sick. Their lungs weren't great. At one point in time, they couldn't find what was going on with Carter, my twin A. And they told me, we've never had somebody with lungs this bad survive much longer. And so I just kept praying. I said, God, if you want him, take him. If you don't heal him, please. If it's not his time to go, please just heal him, heal his lungs. And the next day they found out what was wrong with his lungs and he had heart surgery and he was fine. He just continued to get better. And in that time, I found the most beautiful relationship. Every day I had my routine, I would pour my coffee because I was living in the hospital. I would pour my coffee and go up to the boys' room and I would open up my Bible and I would just start learning. (coughs) And I was finding so much peace in that. I was loving learning about the God that not only created me, but created these miracles right in front of me and all the love and grace that he wanted to give. And then that just transformed my heart. I found Veritas. I found a connection group. And everything that I was asked to do, I just felt this overwhelming calling of God saying, go, do it. When I was asked to join a connection group by myself, I did not feel good about it. It was a married group. (laughs) I was the only single person. (laughs) And I said, okay, well, I guess so. Um, Rebecca, when she asked me to pray as, you know, the single mom, it's like, oof. And people are gonna know that I'm a single mom, but okay, I'll do it. And every time I just feel that God is calling me to do these things. When the boys were in the NICU, their dad decided he didn't want any part of it anymore. He was seeing somebody else at the time and just decided that was it. He didn't care. And I felt so much peace about that. I felt like it was okay. And that's because God was with me the whole entire time telling me that it was okay. So then I found Veritas. I found my connection group. I found my people at Veritas, my people that I started idolizing. And then when those relationships, when people started moving away, sin started entering back into my life because my idols were being taken away from me. And I found myself slowly starting to retreat back to the sinful person that I was before those sweet boys were born, before I gave my life to Jesus. And so then, I started praying for another storm because during the biggest storm of my life, I found the grace of God and I found Jesus during that storm. So then he put another storm into my life (laughs) just as I prayed for. And then as I have continued to grow with God right alongside me, I have continued to have his mercies poured over me. I have continued to have opportunities like this one that I wanted to say no to that just allows me to grow closer to him. So as we have found, just like God put a storm in Jonah's life over and over again, he does not put a storm in our life 
with no purpose behind it. There's a purpose behind every single trial that we endure. There's a purpose behind every single storm that he puts into our lives. It may not be obvious why we are going through a storm at first. It may not be obvious why a family member of ours is going through a storm. It may not be obvious to us in the time if someone close to us that we love passes away, why that storm has entered into our life. But behind every storm is the beautiful creator of that storm. And there's beauty in every single storm. And there's comfort that can be found in every single storm. So tonight, I want you guys, I challenge you to go home and think about the storms that have happened in your life. You can think about the anger that they have brought up. Think about the storms that have happened in other people's lives that you know. And you can think about the sadness that maybe that is brought about. But then find the time to see God as the creator of that storm. See his mercies in that storm. If you are in the time of just slowness in your spiritual life, if it's a season of blah, pray for a storm. It's the hardest thing to want to pray for. But if you need to wake up, ask God to wake you up. Pray for a storm to pour over your life or to pour over somebody's life that it needs to pour over in order for them to wake up and find the grace and mercy of God through that storm. Let's pray.